Riffing Mastery Podcast, episode number 14. Welcome to the Riffing Mastery Podcast. My name is Dylan McCabe, and in every episode, we give you a seat at the table as we interview owners and CEOs and industry experts in the roofing industry so that you can learn strategies to take your own company to the next level. And in this episode, I interview the owner and founder of Coppermark Public Adjusting, Greg Cannon. I'll tell you right now, Greg takes it to a whole new level of detail and strategy when it comes to public adjusting and working with general contracting and construction companies. A few big things you're going to get out of this episode is the fact that the title of this episode is How to Not Need a Public Adjuster. And Greg has a presentation he gives on this. He's going to teach you and educate you on the steps you need to take so that you are more well-equipped to navigate the process when your customers file claims and you can make sure you do a stellar job as a general contractor. You're going to get a ton out of this, so I'm really looking forward to you listening. Before you do that, I have one big question and plug for one of our services. Is your website outranking your competition? My personal background is VP of operations for a large digital marketing company several years ago, and something we did successfully was allow our clients to rank very high, sometimes in the first place, for specific keywords that they wanted to achieve rankings for in Google. If that's something you need, if you type your service in in your local market and you don't show up in one of those first three spots, go ahead and head over to our website, roofingmastery.com, schedule a discovery call with me, and you can learn the strategies that you need to put in place to rank higher in Google. We can do a discovery call completely free of charge. All right, guys, there's my shameless plug to our SEO services here at Roofing Mastery. Now let's get into this awesome interview with Greg Cannon from Coppermark Public Adjusting. All right, as I stated, we have special guest on the show today, Greg, uh, show today, Greg Cannon from Coppermark Public Adjusters. Greg, thanks for joining the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to to dive into this interview because you were originally referred to me by Cannon Barong from Barong Construction, who said, hey, I've worked with different public adjusters. Uh, I've had to deal with major large loss claims and uh, Greg's company has just absolutely knocked it out of the park for me. He's an expert. You should talk to this guy. And so I wanted to talk to you about doing a podcast interview. And uh, and I know in our discovery call, you really shed a lot of light on some stuff. So before we dive into all that, I kind of want to just give you a minute to share your background story and how you got into roofing and then into public adjusting. Absolutely. Um, the short story is I met a guy in a bar. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, fresh out of the Navy going to school, going to college. And, um, I would stop in to this sports bar in this small town that my parents were living in to, um, take a break before the rush hour traffic getting home. And I met a guy who was actually selling roofs door to door. Um, his name was Alan. I don't recall his last name. This was 18, almost 19 years ago. Um, we got to talk and he was telling me and explaining to me what it is he did, which blew my mind because I used to remember putting on roofs with my uncles when I was a teenager. I didn't realize you could make money selling the roofs. So that was a game changer for me. I hooked up with that company and um, worked for them for about five years before I started my own. So um, we bounced around doing what they used to call the, the storm chasing, storm chasing roofing. Did that for almost 10 years um, before settling down in Oklahoma. Finally, we did uh, 14 different States and um, 
the rest is history with that. A lot of hurricanes, a lot of tornadoes, obviously a lot of hail and wind. Um, we did Hurricane Wilma, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Ike. Um, I do not particularly prefer to do hurricanes <laughs> when it comes to residential anyway. Um, there is a lot going on there, but we've been through it all. Um, my my wife and I actually have been doing this together for 13 years. I was doing it about five years before I met her. So she helps a lot with scoping and building code issues. But um, when she got pregnant and we were about to have my daughter, I, I realized I didn't like working or I didn't want to work 14 to 18 hours a day anymore. I couldn't do it. Not and be a, a, a well, without being an absentee father, I guess. So I decided I needed to change some stuff around and prioritize. And the the claims aspect of what we did was my favorite. It always has been. If if they had UPA, you know, unauthorized public adjusting back 18 years ago, I'd probably be in jail by now. Because, you know, everything we did revolved around trying to help settle the claim correctly and, and accurately. But, you know, in recent years, that's become a no-no. There's licensing now. I mean, back when we were working Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi, they didn't even recognize public adjusters. It's not that there wasn't a... a a license. They just didn't, there wasn't anything on their laws or on their books to even acknowledge the fact that they existed. So you could pretty much do whatever you want. There was consultants left and right coming in from Florida. So, but, um, uh, I, I sold my, I've sold two roofing companies and started the public adjusting firm because that was always my favorite. The dealing with the customers, the helping indemnify the clients, the, the, I hate to call it a game, but it's almost a chess game when it comes to insurance policies and claims coverage. And that's the part that I enjoyed the most was making sure that the customers were getting paid um, the right way. We started that back in 2017. Um, and so it's our three-year anniversary this year, and we have been, we've been killing it. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a great feeling when we we just finished one here in Dallas. We just got the final word last week on a house uh, that we took to appraisal, went to the umpire. The umpire uh, sided in our favor, and uh, the initial <clears throat> the initial number from the insurance company was twenty three thousand, and the number number we ended at was forty one thousand. And this is on a seventy square roof at a in a in a nicer neighborhood in Dallas. And there's nothing added to that that isn't part of the scope of work. I mean, there was storm right. damage all over all over the place, and it's just the it's just the most satisfying feeling when you get to educate the homeowner on their rights as a homeowner and the the owner of the of the the roof and their it's their claim, it's their process, but just educate them on their options and then give them a full scope of work and then you know, see them on the better side of the deal at the end of the day. Absolutely. So one of the things you and I talked about, there's so much we could discuss, but uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into what you said. And you said one of the presentations you give uh, when you give public talks and and stuff is uh, how to not need a public adjuster. Yeah. So, So what are the major steps on how to not need a public adjuster like yourself? Well, <clears throat> the steps it's it's funny the people think i'm nuts for even talking about that i mean other pas <laughs> um but to be quite honest there are a lot more contractors than there are public adjusters and there are a lot more bad public adjusters than there are good ones 
So if, if the contractors with the boots on the ground and the knowledge of the products and the processes and the methods of repair um, are able to get things done, especially when it comes to residential, then, I mean, why not? I mean, they're, they're in the best shape and the best position to help the policyholder, help the homeowner. Um, they're, they're in a better shape than anybody. Um, so one of the things that I teach is documentation. You know, you, even a bad PA generally has decent documentation. And I know some attorneys would not agree with that um, when they're taking over their files. But that's kind of the major difference between a really good uh, loss coordinating contractor and a public adjuster is the documentation and then the, the ability to cite the policy. Now, as a contractor, you're not going to want to go around citing policy, but you can ask a lot of questions um, and you can ask questions through documentation. So everybody harps on photographs, photographs, photographs. But one of my big things is audio documentation, the phone calls and the, the, um, the meetings in person. You know, when you're meeting with the other adjusters or you're meeting with an engineer, you should be recording those calls if your state allows it. And I know that there's a lot of one-party authorized states out there. I don't know every state memorized, but I know that Oklahoma is one of them. Texas is one of them. Um, maybe even Ohio and Indiana. I'm not quite sure about the rest. But if at all possible, what you want to do is, is audio document your interactions with the insurance company, first and foremost, so you don't forget what happened and what was said while you were there. But also, it helps keep everybody honest. Um, there's a lot of times where, you know, I've got an adjuster and an engineer standing and I've got a good story about that too, as a matter of fact, but they're, they're saying, yeah, this, this thing's, the wind has busted everything up. All the seals are broken. This needs a new, new roof ASAP. We, we, we agree. We understand. And then all of a sudden we're getting a denial letter in the mail from the desk adjuster. Well, you go to rev.com and you can send your audio file in. They'll transcribe it for you for a dollar per minute. And, um, once you get that fairly cleaned up, you send it into the desk adjuster and say, I'm confused, you know, because everybody on site agreed that the coverage needed to be extended, where in this case, a contractor wouldn't be saying that you want to say that the roof needed to be replaced. What's happened between now and then the, the, the customer has moved forward based on that assertion that the adjuster in the field made. So why are you all of a sudden trying to take away coverage? a lot of times that's all you need to do to make sure that the roof gets paid for. Um, photo documentation is extremely, extremely important. And everybody harps on that, but <clears throat> company cam is an amazing tool. I have found it took me a year to get on board. And when I finally did, I couldn't believe how, how dumb I was for not using it fully to begin with. But you know, the adjusters out there taking somewhere between 25 and 50 photographs. If you're out there taking 300 photographs of every single aspect of what's going on, you're over-documenting, you're making notes, you're circling things, pointing arrows, having comments, your documentation is going to trump theirs. Documentation is key, burying them in documentation because they are doing the bare minimum it takes to either deny the claim or get it off their desk. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's one of the same thing, right? So if you can show basically that you're doing a better job than that field adjuster did as to and, and, and proving why the damage is there and the the roof or the siding or what have you needs to be replaced, 
they have no choice but to take that in consideration. There's, there's a lot of times where a contractor can get things turned around with a really great scope with amazing photograph report and a nice little letter from a policyholder. Um, a third, then that brings me to my third thing, having the policyholder on board, the policyholder can say whatever they want. They can talk about coverage. They can talk about state law. They can talk about whatever the heck they want because it's their policy, their contract, right? So as a contractor, you're going to want to ask a lot of questions. Well, I don't, you know, why wouldn't this be covered? Why wouldn't that be covered? What you don't want to do is interpret the policy, or interpret the law. You're not going to sit there and say, the policy says this, and this is why you owe for that. That's not going to be what you want to do. But if it needs to come down to that, the policyholder or the homeowner can ask those questions in writing or over the phone. And I would, I would strongly encourage you guys to get them involved to do that. Because the number one weapon the insurance company has against the contractors who are trying to facilitate these losses um, is driving a wedge in between them. They want to call up your customer and say, oh, you're, you're charging way too much. Your contractor's evil. He's, he's, you know, I know 10 other contractors that can do it for cheaper. And, and, and when your homeowner says, I don't give a crap, I hired this guy because they're the best and I trust them not to run off with my barbecue grill at night. Like, this is the contractor I want to use. So you can either pay them or, you know, we can talk to the insurance commissioner about it. I mean, just those words lets the insurance company know that they're not going to be driving that wedge and that they need to start taking you guys seriously and taking your estimate seriously along with all of your good documentation. So let's talk about that for a minute because I know you and I are both part of level the playing field Facebook group and it comes up a lot where guys say, can I mention this? Can I mention that or whatever? What what are some tips that you have for general contractors for what, what they can mention and not, you know, not, breach up a laws or get into any trouble like you mentioned asking questions so if i go in there can i can i go and say here's the scope of work one of the things you might want to ask when you get a when you get paperwork back from your your adjuster is why aren't all these items included on the list or like what do i do to kind of coach the customer to, to have knowledge um, the, the, my favorite question for a homeowner to ask and it's his favorite question that, that, that we ask as pas is can you send me in writing the portion of the policy that, that denies this, this item or this coverage or whatever this may be, you know, can you send me the portion of the policy in writing that denies coverage for X, Y, or Z for pipe jack, for the removal of pipe jacks, for the fascia, for whatever the case is Um, that, that right there is strong because in most States, a denial has to be accompanied with the portion of the policy that is denying the coverage to whatever aspect they are denying, if that makes sense. So you demanding that in writing is the single strongest thing that the policyholder can do because now the adjuster understands, oh crap, I'm not just going to, you know, steamroll these people. Um, that's probably my favorite question is, do you, can you send me the portion of the policy that denies um, coverage to the removal of pipe jacks or hip and ridge or starter or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, In the contractor's terms, the contractor can ask, so you probably intend to be sending a copy of the policy, the portion of the policy that denies the coverage for these things. Right. So you can't be held liable for interpreting a policy when you're asking the adjuster's opinion on interpreting the policy. 
gotcha. leaving that up to him. So as long as it's almost like you're asking rhetorical questions to the adjuster. Exactly. You're turning it into a game of Jeopardy. Just put it in the form of a question and you're good to go. Okay. <laughs> now, what about when you, what about, in, and I really like what you said, over document, um, record conversations. And I love the idea of turning that audio into a transcript and then asking for the portion of the policy that mentions that those items are not covered on the, on your list there. Um, what about when you are emailing the adjuster? Like in this situation, we emailed, <clears throat> we got in touch with the, uh, the agent at the insurance company or with the adjuster, we emailed the adjuster our scope of work. We used Xactimate to build it out. We added everything that we thought was included in the damage, even obvious things that were left off, like the gutters had big dents and all kinds of stuff. We added that stuff. And then we we gave, we wrote an email that probably had 10 bullet points to say, hey, we added this, here's the reasons why. We added this, here's the reasons why. We added this, here's the reasons why. And all of that was included in our presentation that we put together too. Under every single picture, we had a little, few little sentences explaining what we saw, why it was needed, why it was added to the estimate, all this stuff. Well, he emailed us back and just said, no, here's why. No, here's why. No, here's why. And even got a little cocky and said, I've done hundreds of roofs in the last year alone and I've never had that question asked. It was about UL listed. Yeah. So all this stuff. So how far can we go in emailing the agent versus the homeowner emailing the agent? Um, Because again, I don't want to cross over into, I don't want to get in trouble um, as the general contractor. So this is okay. That's a good, that's a good question. And here's a blanket rule um, that, that I go by is as, as a general contractor or a contractor, you're the expert when it comes to the materials. You're the expert when it comes to the method of repair. The adjuster can't even come close. It's not what he does for a living. What he does is determine coverage. That's what he's supposed to be doing. And for some reason, why these guys have been made authorities in building repairs over the last 20 years or so is beyond me. I, I, I don't understand it. Because unless you've had a general contractor's license or... Um, equivalent experience, you have no business telling anybody what belongs in a scope and what doesn't. So the two things you've got to remember is as as a GC, you're the building code expert and you're the materials expert and the method of repair expert. These guys are expert on coverage and policy, supposedly. I mean, I wouldn't call most of them experts, but you know what I mean. So um, stick to the building code, stick to the method of repair and the quality of the materials. You know as a contractor when a material is damaged. I mean, you pull shingles out of a packet every single day and see that it doesn't have a big, huge bruise in it. That's a decent material. If it did, you would discard it as waste, right? So determining damage in in this respect, you can say something is damaged. Yeah, it's damaged. Is it hail damaged, wind damaged? I, you know what? As a contractor, I really don't care. But now it's not shedding water and it needs to go, right? Now is it repairable? Of course, it's not repairable. You've got a 15-year-old um, elk pristique up there. It's 40 years. How are we going to repair that? Or a capstone or whatever the case may be. How are we repairing this, Mr. Adjuster? So that's another question I would ask. How, 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 how do you expect us to repair this? How do you expect us to do that? How do you expect us to do this? Make them explain to you how it's possible. How are you supposed to pull counter flashing out of a chimney or, or elk flashing from behind siding without detaching and resetting the lower portions of the siding. I mean, how is it possible? Please help me understand. So you, you guys, you're allowed to talk about all this stuff. 
methods of repair, the crickets behind the chimney that are building code. I would say the number one weapon you've got right now is building code. You guys need to become experts at building code. And every time they want to throw something at you about policy, you throw some building code at them because they don't know it. You know, they don't know it. If they, if they knew it, they wouldn't ask you for a copy every single time you send in an estimate. Yeah, but that, no, it's a great point. But it's, and we found, I mean, it's been my short experience. I'm relatively new to the industry. It just seems like a lot of times it's not really the competency you're up against. It's just the individual and their personality because a lot of these guys are coming in from all different fields across the, the, the playing field of, of backgrounds. And some of them want to be helpful and some of them don't. And that's what makes it hard. But we, we had another roof we we uh, we did, and we we told the homeowner, you know, it looks like there's plenty of storm damage here, both wind and hail. He filed a claim. The field adjuster that came out literally had never set up a ladder before. I didn't ask him if he'd never set up a ladder before. I sat there and watched him for five minutes try to put a ladder with one half of it on the sidewalk and one half of it in the grass. And he's going back and forth with the ladder. And I just looked the other way because I was like, man, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) But he got up on the roof. He looked around. He seemed nervous. He was also very young. I mean, I'm relatively young. I'm 40 years old, but I think he was probably about 15 years younger than me. And uh, I said, hey, real quick, what did you see? Just tell me. I I made a list, too. Let's let's work together. Let's let's make this as streamlined as possible. He left several items off. I said, well, did you catch this? Did you catch this? Did you catch this? Man, by the end of our 10-minute conversation, he's like, well, yeah, we're going to go ahead and pay for everything. I thought, man, this is great. But I think it's because he was just so intimidated by the process that he just immediately knew he was he was beyond his depth and just went ahead, went along with it. Sure. So, so let's talk about going back to your presentation that you like to give. I noticed as I look through it, you do spend a fair amount of time unpacking the concept of waste. So let's talk about why waste plays an important role in the process of estimates and claims? Quite honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't. But for some reason, the insurance company or companies have been making this an issue for the past three or four years. And I, I guess I've been doing it too. I mean, there's guys out there that have been doing this for 30 years. I've only been doing it for 18, right? But I'm still just flabbergasted at why this is even an argument because waste traditionally in any trade is crap you throw away, right? It's trash. So for them to try to place new materials into a a trash category defies every amount of logic that any tradesman with any experience would have. And this right here proves to that proves my point. They have no clue about building code. They have no clue about method of repair and, and this proves it, the fact that they're trying to put hip and ridge and starter into the waste factor. So we've got several third-party sources that you, you, you can go to Webster's Dictionary. You can go to Google. You can go to Xactimate in the exact analysis section. And it defines waste as basically the leftover materials, the unusable leftover materials that are discarded at the job site. All right. You've got um, anybody who's ever done any training for the NASCLA exam. National Association of Licensed Contractors, I think. Um, There's about 24 books that you have to study, mostly about project management and different trades. You know, you've got got piping, excavating, roofing, carpentry. All these books describe waste as trash, all right? These are all construction books. Um, I got, I keep looking over at my bookshelf here because I have all those books from that test over there from back when I was in South Carolina. But 
the concept of of using waste as a product on the roof, number one, is against building code. Number two is just against logic. So let's go a step further and ask them a question. They're being told to say this by whomever, their supervisor or whatnot. You're not going to change their mind a lot of times. Um, I, I've, I've, I know there's a couple of waste calculators floating around out there. Xactimate's waste calculator is just as good as any of them, really, when you're, when you're boiling it down. But when you read the Xactimate line items, the definitions and the descriptions of the line items, it tells you what's included and what's not. If the line item doesn't say that hip and ridge and starter is included, then it's not. And I know that the definitions have been changing here recently for whatever reason with updates and in Xactimate 1, there's a lot of stuff included in these line items that didn't used to be included before. But the building code will save you here because the building code, one of the first things it says in the roofing section is roofing materials must be dropped off in original packaging. This is to prevent people from using leftover materials on, on people's property. So, so, I mean, we're not going to get a bunch of open bundles or factory seconds together to go put on a roof. That's what the building code is trying to prevent from happening. So if the material is not delivered in its original packaging, it's against the building code. And in a lot of states, being against the building code, if it's statutory, is against the law. So the insurance company is essentially asking these contractors to, to break the law by using trash on a new roof system, which is absurd. Um. I think the move to lump sum estimates recently, and it's not a recent concept. It's, it's stuff we were, we were doing 15 years ago. It's come full circle. That's getting rid of a lot of these waste arguments um, because who cares? We're charging by the square, waste or not. Remove and replace roof system, X amount per square. Total price, material sales tax is one third of that. So we're good to go. This is what we're charging. Yeah, that's what I was going to refer to is, is um, you know, my interview with Wallace Stein from Modern Concepts, man, he really unpacks how they do how they do lump sum contracts and why. Yeah. And I mean, he's not playing around. You know, they they put together their estimate. They they include their margins. They put a lump sum contract together and that's it. They don't they don't play the insurance game of, well, how did you get this price or that price? They don't even they don't even enter that conversation. That's what I did in 2013. That's what I wound up doing is as after testing the market and seeing how everything was going, we did it both in South Carolina and in Oklahoma um, congruently. And here is our price per square. We, this is the contract price we get. We had financing available for the customers if they wanted to finance it and use their insurance money for something else. And that was the end of it. And if it didn't, if the insurance company wanted to say anything about it, then they could take it to appraisal or, or, or pay it. I mean, that, that was the end of it. It's cost incurred at this point because it's in the contract. So the concept of arguing over every single separate line item to me was kind of foreign. And I still don't put up with that crap. It's the money needs to be there to, to facilitate the work in a fair market in, in environment. It needs to be there, you know, arguing over a pipe jack or a, a, a piece of flashing to me is irrelevant. Because you've got plenty of resources out there besides Xactimate pricing things out. You've got the Craftsman system. You've got HomeWise. You've got, um, uh, well, Symbility uses the Craftsman. The Craftsman books have been used for years and years and years, even before Xactimate, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a lot of different pricing systems out there, but there's nothing going to be better than what the actual contractor's price is. You take your labor and material plus your markup, 
And that's what your company charges. Nobody can tell you what to charge. The yeah, FTC, nobody else nobody else knows what you have as far as overhead, your staff, right. your trucks, your marketing expenses, your nobody else knows those numbers other than the owner of the company. Yeah. You know the insurance uh, adjuster might want to say, well, I've got 10 other contractors that can do it for cheaper. And I can say, I've got, I can, I've got an independent agent over here. Who's got 15 insurance companies that charge a lower premium than your company does. So what? And it's for the same ISO policy. So what's your point? Nobody's telling them what to charge. And nobody's telling me what to charge either. We've got a fair market environment here and, and we've made a deal. The contractor or the, the policyholder and I are, in your case, the homeowner, the homeowner and I have, have entered into this contract. They've incurred this cost. We're doing this roof. You can either pay for it or not. That's going to be between you, their lawyer, and the insurance commissioner, for, as far as I'm concerned. Well, let me ask you this, because I know that you work with um, a variety of companies. Some of them, I mentioned Baron Construction. They do some large projects. They do a lot of the Chick-fil-A build-outs across the Southeast. Uh, they do large loss projects in the Georgia and surrounding areas. Um, kind of explain maybe one or two stories of a situation where a contractor has engaged your services and you guys really knocked it out of the park and saw, saw great success at the end of the process. We've, we, uh, there's, there's several, there is so many. Um, one of my favorites is a refrigerated warehouse, huge refrigerated warehouse, probably about, um, 3000 square. um, ammonia piping, three different roof systems, you know, TPO on part, then we've got modified on another, then, then, then EPDM. And by the time this came to me, they had already had an engineer and a, an adjuster out. And the adjuster, I, I, I would venture to say this was a little over his head because I think he priced out a $20,000 repair. $20,000 didn't begin to cover this. I mean, this was a $2 million claim all day long. So we got involved. And as soon as we sent in our letter of representation, then they hired a different adjusting firm. Cause I guess that the first one, it was a, that, that amount was above their authority, their authority level. Um, and then they sent out another engineer, another engineering firm from, from Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. And this, this claim was in Oklahoma. So we actually got the subcontractors involved, the ammonia piping experts, the, the, I got real market pricing and I love doing this. I go to you guys, I go to the contractors for my pricing because I can't, nobody's going to argue with that. I mean, well, they'll argue with it, but they're not going to win because they're using a made up, you know, Xactimate system and we're using real numbers from the real market. So once all these are collected, we get it together and it's, it's about $2 million. It's like $1.8 million loss. Well, back and forth, the engine, they sent this engineer out and they send out these unlicensed consultants from Dallas and then another set of unlicensed consultants from Florida. And they were trying really, really hard to not pay this claim. Um, this is where documentation comes in. I'm documenting every single one of these meetings, every single email. I'm recording every single interaction. We hire our own engineer, um, we have those meetings as well. This took about a year and a half, quite honestly, just because different states have different laws regarding the amount of time the carrier has to respond to different um, requests or demands or proofs of loss or what have you. So throughout the entire process, each one of these, these so-called experts they keep sending out, we keep shooting them down. 
well, you know, what about the Oklahoma statutory building code? Oh, well, what's that? The guy, the engineer from, from Arizona tried to tell us that, uh, um, that, that the winds don't get that high in Oklahoma. And I'm like, they were that high on Tuesday. What are you talking about? Like they made a musical about it. So <laughs> there is, uh, um, there's, they were really trying very, very hard to not pay this claim. The documentation that we kept up with was what was systematically shooting these guys down. Well, your last engineer said this. Your last consultant agreed with that. I have the documentation and the transcript right here. Eventually, we had to go to mediation, but they agreed to go to mediation after we already had them backed into a corner. There wasn't any litigation. This is one of the few times where mediation happened without the lawyers actually filing suit. That hadn't happened yet. They wanted to go to arbitration, but that wasn't allowed. So we said, what, you know, what the heck? Um, the policyholder had an attorney. They decided to go through the mediation process and they came in after everything was said and done, offering th- an additional $34,000. And we went through all of our documentation. We went through all of their documentation with the mediator. Um, the mediator was kind of taken aback a little bit, went in there and I'll save you the back and forth, but um, eventually they wound up coming out with $1.5 million in new money. Wow. And it was because they knew, because the policyholder basically said, we're settling today or we're going to file suit tomorrow. And they knew that based on the documentation that we had, the case that was prepared, the fact that we found moisture in the substrate in six different areas in that roof, um, everything was stacked against them. And they knew based on my documentation that um, they were not going to look good in front of a jury or in front of a uh, in court at all. I mean, I'm speculating that, but I mean, why would, why else would they pay the money? That is such a good story though. And I mean, it sounds like with your, I mean, it's fastidious note-taking that you're talking about here. A lot of people are not going to go to those links to document every single thing like that put an audio recording to a transcript, compile everything, build a case. I mean, it's almost like you're half attorney, half half public adjuster at that point, even though I know you're not acting as an attorney. I'm just right. saying that's like a whole different level of detail that I think brought about the victory in that situation. That's that's just an awesome story. Yeah. The, the, the thing to remember is these are large losses. These are there's a lot of guys out there that try to bring residential framework to a larger loss like that. And a larger loss takes a larger effort. I mean, it absolutely does. Yeah. So let's talk about another situation where the kinds of customers that engage you, is it all large loss claims or do you work with general contracting companies that are just doing hundreds of roofs a year? I mean, what do you have a story like that or is it mostly bigger projects? Um, mostly bigger. Well, no, we've got, um, we handle residential in Oklahoma. Um, I, I'm the guy that handles most of the large loss and commercial stuff in our firm. So those are most of my stories, but we, we do have several, several, uh, um, uh, residential files as well. Allstate's a great example. Um, Allstate wants to say, you know, there's one, one file in particular that wound up, well, there's, there's several, but this one, we, um, we were going after the decking because they had, you know, what they call this space decking. It's in, it's improperly called space decking, but it's because it has spaces is why they call it that. 
um, it's the plank decking, you know, the one by eight, the one by 10 with the huge gaps in it with over a quarter of an inch. It's all state has a clause in there and their basic policy they sell does not have an ONL endorsement for ordinance and law. So what all state wants to do a lot of times in these situations, from my experience is they're trying to, to lump everything that building code requires into an ONL category. The problem with that is you, you have what's called a standard method of repair. And your standard method of repair is to do things properly in a workmanship-like manner, right? Something that can be warrantied for the future. You can't put something in a workmanship-like manner by breaking the building code, i.e. breaking the law. So right there, if you've got a state-mandated building code, like you have in Oklahoma, and you do in Texas, by the way, too. A lot of people don't know that. But when you've got a state mandated building code like that, then that's the baseline where you start. That's the workmanship like manner that starts the process. Now, those building codes have to be followed by law. No contract, i.e. insurance contract can supersede state law. I can't sit there and make a contract between me and you. We, you know, we go steal a car, we can split it 50-50. Well, that's a, that's, that breaks the law. Of course, that contract's not valid. You know, There's better examples than that, but that's the first thing that popped into my head. Um, we, the insurance contract can't sit there and break state law. Therefore, the contractor can't put, in, put on a roof without adhering to the minimum building standards in a workmanship-like manner, i.e. the building code. That being said, the solid sheathing is required by... The manufacturer. It's also required by the building code, but since it was required by the manufacturer, it's required by the building code, which is required by state law, which means it supersedes the policy saying that they don't cover it because that's the baseline the contractor has to start with. I hate it when they try to throw decking into O and L or a pipe jack for God's sake. Painting pipe jacks is building code because it's required by the manufacturers, right? Manufacturers specifications say that the, the I'm sorry, the building code says the manufacturer specifications are part of the code. It doesn't say whether they use the word recommended or, or required. It doesn't differentiate between the two. If it exists as an instruction from the manufacturer, it becomes part of the building code. That's it. That's all of it. So with Allstate, not having O&L was meaning they were turning down all of these files or all these claims that had this gapped, you know, one by eight, decking with these huge spaces in it we eventually five files in a row got them to pay for the decking based on this argument and a lot of it had to do with the letter that was written by john doke the old insurance commissioner of oklahoma um who said that the building codes need to be followed uh regardless of 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 whether or not the municipalities were enforcing them Right. That did help a lot. But in recent years, the insurance commissioner, the new insurance, the new insurance commissioner and the insurance companies have been ignoring that left and right. But the documentation that we sent in showing the trail, we basically made a, um, a flow chart. This is required because of this, because of this, because of this and because of this. And now it's covered based on your policy. And I know you guys don't want to get into the policy like that, but that is something that a homeowner can say, hey, and I've got a good video on my blog about that very thing, about the trail that we went down in order to get that done on all these Allstate files that did not have O&L endorsements. 
That's good stuff. I mean, that's a creative way to make a point, make a case for for what you're saying. So <clears throat> I got to ask you about the difference between appraisal and using a public adjuster, because you play the role of both. I noticed looking in your credentials, you I mean, you've owned and sold roofing companies that, that you helped grow and sell. You have experience in the insurance space. You've been a public adjuster. You're also an umpire in the state of Oklahoma. And so kind of help clear the fog on that. Why would I want to take something to appraisal versus using a public adjuster and vice versa? So my basic rule is public adjusters are for coverage disputes. Appraisal is for a pricing dispute and attorneys are when bad faith and breach of contract are involved. All three of them pay, play an important role. You know, there are some attorneys that'll say all appraisal across the board sucks. And some PAs will say the same thing. Um, and some PAs will say all attorneys suck and some attorneys will say all PAs suck. And I think they all three play an important role in different stages of what's going on. And the guys that, um, that, 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 that we hang out with and then that we have a like mind with all understand this too. all the attorneys, appraisers, public adjusters that we associate with are of the same mind that the policy holder comes first, not your theory of how you think claims should go. So for instance, if, if Liberty Mutual is paying for a new roof, but they're frequently 60 cents to 40 cents on the dollar because of their, their MRP, right? So they got their Mad Sky thing out there and they're saying you can buy these jingles at this price at this place, which is a bunch of garbage. Um, but they've opened up all the coverage and you're not arguing over whether or not the roof is covered or not. That is a really good example of appraisal. Now, Appraisal in that situation, you've got to be careful about the spread. Spread meaning what's the difference between what they're offering and what it should be market value, right? An appraisal can be a little bit costly, and it's not, a, it's not something that can be reimbursed by the insurance company like an engineer report or an Xactimate, for instance, or I'm sorry, an Eagle View, right? So when you're having strictly pricing disputes appraisal is a good way to go you got to check with your state though because there are certain states where appraisal is bad news other states where it's not even allowed and some where you have to agree like in kansas um, the insurance company has to agree to go to appraisal same thing with in arkansas they have to agree to it in texas they don't have to agree to it and it's binding in oklahoma there's a there's an old case law that that actually is in violation of Title 36 that said it's only in, in, in binding on the invoking party, meaning that if the policyholder invokes the appraisal and the appraisal award comes out, the insurance company can say we don't want to pay that. Um, so different states have different case law and different rules, but generally, when you've got a pricing dispute, an appraisal is a quick and, and relatively inexpensive way to get the claim settled you and i you know you're the adjuster i'm the contractor we're not coming to an agreement on a price we keep arguing about we got 10 guys that can do it for cheaper and i say i got 10 guys that can do it for more okay fine appraisal we'll let the market decide we'll let the disinterested parties decide we probably do about 30 of those a month as a matter of fact uh, when it's just a price there's no reason for a public adjuster to take on a file when you're disagreeing with a price because what's going to happen. And a lot of young PAs I see doing this and they'll take on these files and they're basically turning themselves into glorified supplementers and they make all these promises that they can't keep because at that point, the insurance company's already opened coverage. 
there's nothing for the PA to do. They're going to run into the same hurdles. They're going to run into the same problems and brick walls that the contractors are running into unless they've got an inside man or they've got a boatload of documentation to the contrary. Sometimes those can get raised, but in the six months it takes to do that, you could have gone through appraisal for probably cheaper. Okay. And so I know at the outset, we talked about how to not need a public adjuster. When, when is a good time to engage in a public adjuster and why, when, what's the, what's the best case scenario for that? Public adjusters are only useful when it comes to coverage. I mean, quite honestly, and I came from, from the roofing contracting world. I, you, you guys, the roofing contractors can do anything the EPA can do except for talk about policy so and interpret the policy. So when, when, you, when you outline it like that, you only need a PA when you've got a coverage problem. When they're saying that, you know, yeah, sure, there's hail damage, but this is all wear and tear, right? That's a classic one we have to deal with all the time. Farmers especially, that's marring. You know, so because there's marring, then then this isn't covered. You can't. So separate exclusions in the policy are are just that separate. So if I've got a valid hail claim, but you're trying to deny my hail claim based on wear and tear present. That's a misinterpretation of the policy, and that needs to be cleaned up by a PA. And that's just a basic example of one. When you get to commercial policies, um, it is much, much more complicated than that. I've, I've read policies that were 300 pages long and they take away and give back coverage four or five times throughout the entire document. So, so translating that kind of stuff is where a PA is most useful. Pricing discrepancies, supplements, um, things like that. A PA is... I know they try to help. They want to make some money. They want to make people happy. But quite honestly, they shouldn't be taking files like that because you've got appraisal out there and you've got documentation that can be sent in. You've got managers that you can call and run up the ladder. Um, there are other ways to handle stuff like that. There's, there's, there's a, a file in Texas right now that I just had to make a phone call and ask a bunch of pointed questions and talk to a supervisor. And we got the claim settled in probably 15 minutes. Um, Things like that, you're not going to want to hire a PA for. And the expectation being set by some of these PAs is wrong. They're promising you guys the world and taking forever to close stuff like that because they shouldn't have taken it in the first place. So you got to watch out for those traps. That's, I call it quicksand. You know, these PAs, they get into quicksand, and pretty soon they've got a bunch of smaller files that they don't want to deal with because they all want to try to go after these big fish. Even they may they may not be qualified for it, but – they made all these promises to everybody and um, now they're stuck. They're stuck in the quicksand. I would say everybody out there should be Xactimate certified, even though I don't particularly like that program. Um, work on your documentation and uh, your, your, your rebuttals and your documents to the carrier. And you shouldn't need a PA for those types of situations. When the carrier comes back and says, Hey, we're denying this claim because that's old damage or because don't in said so that's when you need a public adjuster. That's good. Thanks for, thanks for clearing that up. I like to ask that question because there is a lot of confusion around that because it's not a clear cut, do this when blank scenario. Sometimes yeah. it's a little hard to determine which one and you got to kind of weigh the pros and cons of the outcome of what if things go well or what if they don't go well and stuff like that. So 
Well, Greg, I know, I mean, we could just go on talking about this for another hour, but how I know there's going to be some people listening to this and they're going to think, you know, I've used a PA in the past, wasn't really satisfied. Greg clearly knows his stuff. How can people get in touch with you? Um, real easy. My email is, is Greg at coppermark.claims, um, coppermark.claims. And then our phone number is eight, five, five, four, five claim. Um, handling claims is what we do. So, uh, we've got six people in the office that do nothing but monitor correspondence like that. And so by either calling or emailing, you'll get a hold of us one way or another. That's great. And I'll be sure to put that in the notes of the show. So before we sign off, what's your final parting piece of advice to, to people listening to this podcast? Oh, learn, learn everything you can. That's how I spent my first 10 years in this business was absorbing everything, getting every certification I could possibly get. Um, the adjusters out there seem to be being put out there with, with less and less experience. So you guys, if the less experience you have, the more knowledge you need. You need to get these certifications, become a certified thermographer, become an Xactimate certified, become uh, NABCEP certified if you can with solar panels. Anything and everything you can to gain knowledge um, will help you in your fight to get your clients what they need and deserve. Amen to that. This is the Roofing Mastery Podcast. And that's something we talk a lot about, that mastery is a process. And when you see somebody playing a piano, playing some amazing song in a concert type setting, what you don't see is the decades they spent banging away at those keys, getting frustrated, feeling like they they weren't getting anywhere. And mastery is a process. And um, and that's what this podcast is all about. That's why we wanted to have you on here, because this is whoever's listening to this. This is 45 minutes of their time where they just level up their knowledge on the claims process and on public adjusting. So, um, Greg, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. What an awesome interview. I love what Greg said about keeping fastidious notes and images on every single thing, documenting everything, keeping things in email, even transcriptions of, of recordings and stuff like that, if it's legal in your state. I mean, and I can tell you right now, he is very active in one of the biggest uh, Facebook groups I'm part of, Level the Playing Field. <clears throat> and he's also very active in the SVG Facebook group. He really knows his stuff and he comes highly recommended from other general contractors that I know across the nation as well. So hope you definitely check Greg out, his uh, website, Copper Mark Public Adjusting. And of course, you can find him in Level the Playing Field. You can find him in the SVG Facebook page. And I will put the details of his website in the notes of this podcast. So just go to roofingmastery.com and look up this episode and you can find that. And last thing I'll say, guys, if this has been helpful to you, please rate and review the podcast. It helps us to get the word out, helps people uh, let people know we have helpful content. Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash roofingmastery, ratethispodcast.com slash roofingmastery. Uh, this is Dylan McCabe with the Roofing Mastery Podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode. Hey.